when we think of these kind of things, we put them in different universes or different kind of fictional worlds. But to the English, it was like, ah, Scandinavia. Scandinavia <laughs> is the new Middle Earth. So yep. get over it, everybody. <laughs> Greetings, travelers. Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. Hail thee thou, travelers. We are so excited to have you, and we've got a very classic tale today. And if you've been keeping tabs on our website, then you'll know that we have a new upcoming section. So to keep going with the trend of heroes, today we have another English story called Beowulf. I need a hero. I need a hero named Beowulf at the edge of the night. <laughs> Beowulf is one of the oldest surviving English epic poems and also one of the most widely translated. The story itself is speculated to be from 700 CE and formed orally before being written down in a manuscript that now exists in the British Museum called the Noel Codex. The actual manuscript is dated to about 975 to 1025, but that's not exactly when the story was formed. Beowulf is best described as Scandinavian fan fiction, since it's set around the 6th century in Scandinavia. But it is not a Scandinavian legend, with most of its origins being Germanic or Christian. The narrator just seems to be telling the story from a more English perspective, so it's like an annotated story that might or might not be real. There's always the fun ones where they say enough things where you think it's a legend, so it could have a kernel of truth, but really it's just fan fiction. <laughs> I like calling this kind of stuff fan fiction just because it's the best way to describe it. Like someone probably heard this story or this legend and they were like, oh, that sounds cool. I want to put my twist to it. I mentioned to my mother that we were going to cover Beowulf and she was just like, why? She read it in English class when she was like in high school. It was so, so boring for her. And she was just like, why are you covering this? Well, we're going to have to skip through some of the long talks of ancestry and some of the more long-winded conversations about people just to make it a bit more interesting but i just feel like you can't have a conversation about heroes without beowulf he's just a really big part of the germanic heroic tradition and it's just a really just well-known story that i feel like everyone at some point has to read so hopefully we can give him a little redemption arc here and make him a little bit more interesting did you know it by reading it in school or did you know about it by just uh popular zeitgeist um, so this is actually, I didn't read it in high school because there are certain books that I am so glad we didn't have to do in high school, at least in my case, but I did read it in university. So one of the graduate programs I did was on kind of Anglo-Saxon medieval works and how they have these figures that people tend to use towards white supremacy. And Beowulf was a big one that we used to talk about just the colonial implications of it and all of that. So it was it was definitely reading it with a very specific perspective in mind, which I think actually made the story a lot better because when you're going into it, reading it from a specific perspective, you know what to look for. Whereas if you're reading it just for the sake of reading it, it does feel a little bit aimless. But you know, I, there's lots of people that spend decades of their life studying different aspects of Beowulf. So some people do, you know, entire dissertations on the monsters, the kings, the types of kings, the type of heroes. Some people spend a lot of time working on the political dilemma between the Yeats and the Danish. So there's lots of different ways to look into it. And I think we're going into it specifically to look at the heroic stuff and the monsters and see what kind of hero um, we see in Beowulf here. 
I mean, that is what we're focused on in this series is looking at heroes and what they mean and how they are represented. And yeah, like you said, Beowulf is pretty iconic. He's fairly well known. Uh, he also just got a good name. Beowulf like seems to roll off the tongue fairly well for me. He's got wolf in the name. He seems legit. Seems cool. <laughs> I will put a disclaimer like we do for most of our episodes these days. The Old English is very difficult. As someone who has spent a lot of time looking at Old English, both for university and now for this, these kind of episodes, there are some names here that I just cannot say, the Scandinavian names, but we will be trying our best. So once again, if we butcher anything, that is our own personal problem. Mm-hmm. And we, we recognize that and we apologize ahead of time. Also, the versions of the story that I have been using, because I'm not you know fluent in Old English, are translations by Seamus Henney and J.R.R. Tolkien. This might not be the Rings of Power, but I hope we can grab your attention for a little bit of an hour. The poem begins with an extensive prelude to Shield Schiefsen and his heroic legacy. Schiefsen was the great-grandfather of our current Danish king in the story, King Hrothgar. To keep the episode streamlined once again, we will be omitting some characters and some long-winded ancestral talk, but be sure to check out the show notes for more in-depth family trees. It is important to know that these characters are descended from heroes, from kings, from princes, and this is a big part of their lineage and of their identity. King Hrothgar had a meat hall called Herat, and it was a place of music, singing, and celebration. Every night, there would be bards singing about great loves, great wars, and great heroes. Everyone loved the meat hall, except the monster Grendel. The exact type of monster Grendel was is still a topic of debate. We know that he was a monster born of Cain, the ones that formed into fiends, goblins, giants, and other ill spirits, creatures of evil that were driven into the darkest corners of the world by the Almighty. Grendel had lived in these moors, and they were his home. The sound of celebration, of dancing and music was painful to him, and yet he bore it night after night. In some translations, the authors painted as Grendel being physically pained by the noise, and in others, the pain is caused by the exclusion by the men. As someone with loud neighbors who insist on blasting their music all day, every day in the summertime, I really sympathize with Grendel here. I think the king is just being a pretty bad neighbor. Grendel does get painted as a sympathetic character sometimes. Sometimes he's painted as just unremorseful, just straight up pure evil. There's no redemption arc for him. And in others, people read him as kind of a symbol for the native people of lands who eventually get pushed out by people who then built their homes and their settlements there. I just have to think that logistically, the music has to be super loud if Grendel, who literally lives underwater, can hear it. Kind of like either Grendel has, has been cursed with really good hearing and he can hear all of this, or, you know, the Danes are a little bit too loud and a little bit too, I guess, jolly in their celebration. And for it to happen, like, all the time, like, it's definitely one thing if you have a party, even just once a week or something, that's still annoying, but, like, you know, you get six other days to have a good night's sleep. But to do it all the time like that, that's just a lot. Yes, and... It does make you question a little bit about what's going on with the Danes. Are they at war? Are they not at war? Is this just a nightly thing? You have to question what extent the noise is and why it's so continuous. Is it peacetime? Because I can't see people doing this during a time of war. So it's probably because 
at the time, mead halls were built to celebrate the warriors, to give them a place to be, to celebrate a king's companions and advisors and his entire kind of court. So this is definitely something that he's doing for his people, but it's for, you know, it's a close-knit group of people. And it doesn't seem like there's anyone else that lives around the hall, just the people that live in the hall. So it's not like they're also giving noise complaints. So one day, Grendel crept over to Herod to see what the noise was. When the noise eventually stopped, he wandered into their hall and waited, watching the drunk sleeping men. That monster of Cain grabbed the men around him and feasted on their flesh. It is said that he dragged 30 men back to his lair to feast on and left havoc behind him. Well, you know what they say. If you can't beat them, eat them. <laughs> it was a bit touched. It was like a touch too far from a noise complaint to straight up just cannibalism. But, you know, maybe take some notes on how to deal with your noisy neighbors. I mean, oh, I've taken lots of notes. Don't worry. Send them a link to this episode. Be like, oh, you got a special shout out. <laughs> yes. Hey, guys, check it out. Now maybe you can play some decent music in the summertime, at least. That's all I'm asking. You know what you should do? You should just play this episode loudly right next to the fence. Problem is, the neighbor on my left is really good friends with my neighbor on my right. So we are just the people in between. So, like, if I get one upset, then I get the other upset with me. And then they could both be blasting music on either side of me. So I don't really want to risk that. Fair enough. I guess eating them is the only option then. Pretty much. But yeah, it is It is a sharp turn. And I've said it once, but I'll say it again. This is pretty um drastic turn to go to murder. And not just murder, but 30. And you're eating them. Like, this is a pretty sharp turn, to be sure. <laughs> Gosh, dang, it's like he was sympathetic one paragraph ago, and now it's just like, okay, you've really gone too far. <laughs> I don't think he minds. He is a monster after all, in the truest sense. It's true. We don't even know what he looks like. The next day, the Danes woke to the chaos and bloodshed. They had lost their friends, their family members, and their warriors. The next night, Grendel returned, and the men soon realized that this monster was not one they could fight off. Over time... They all fled until no one was left on Grendel's lands. He managed to do what Shrek could not and effectively cleared his swamp. For 12 years, Herod stood empty. The Danish king Hrothgar was not too happy with this one specific loss, and news of his misery spread. Bards sang of the lonely war being pledged in Herod and how the monster Grendel reigned in the moors. How are the bards getting all of this information? Do they, like, hide out and watch as people get eaten? Or are they just purely making stuff up? Do they not have journalistic integrity to cite their sources? This kind of seems random that bards suddenly have all of this information, but everyone dies when they get near Grendel or when they encounter it. Well, keep in mind that King Hrothgar is still alive and so are some of his other men because they did flee from the, the meat hall. So what probably happened is that people came to visit, and when they come to visit, they bring kind of their own courtiers, they bring their own men, they bring their own kind of bards as well and singers. And so as people visit one another, or as, you know, they stop on their travels, news kind of spreads that way just by word of mouth. And it's been 12 years, so people have had lots of time to kind of collect information on this. And I'm sure that the court itself had a bard who sang of the legends. It's kind of the same way how... We pass oral tradition on through legends and storytelling. Bards were just one part of that puzzle with their singing. I like the idea that bards were like 
instrumental pun intended on getting like the local stories around and kind of being historians in a very small way of being like yep we gotta remember what's happened here let me tell you in song form i really do enjoy in this story specifically as well how the bars keep coming up again and again and this idea of stories being told and legends being told and this legend being created in real time even though our narrator has already framed the story as he's telling us a story And then we have that extra layer of the bards then telling the story again. So it's kind of like a circle of history happening here where the narrator knows that he's telling a historical, well, not historical, but he's telling a legend, he's telling a story. And then there are also characters in his story that then also tell stories of other heroes and legends. And it's all just a really cool kind of callback to the idea that these stories, these traditions are taking place in real time to this narrator, to the writer of the story. It's also nice to see my D&D class showing up here. (laughs) (laughs) You're part of history. Yay! My little halfling is doing awesome being part of history. (laughs) And I think that's one of the reasons why. This is a very purely English story, but it's been placed in Scandinavia and with Scandinavian characters and kind of these pagan traditions and stuff because there's just so much more exciting things, I guess, at the time happening around the world than the English were letting themselves be known for. So they could be like, oh, remember the dragons and the monsters and the goblins and the Valkyries happening over there in Scandinavia? Let's let's write about them. It's the same thing now, right? We have fantasy TV shows for a reason. It's because we want to see these kind of things. We want to see dragons and firebending and all of this cool stuff that we don't have in our real world. Mm-hmm. Or like Indiana Jones or Uncharted type deal where you just kind of make up random items like, ah, it's a secret city. It's totally real. It's not question it. Atlantis is real. (laughs) It's going to take you a long time to find it. But when you get there, you're going to realize that there was no roof to this place. So you could have probably noticed it from an aerial view, but we're going to ignore that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, except, you know, when we think of these kind of things, we put them in different universes or a different kind of fictional worlds. But to the English, it was like, ah. Scandinavia. (laughs) Scandinavia is the new Middle Earth, so get over it, everybody. (laughs) So these stories kind of evolved, and one story told of how although Grendel could savage and lurk around, Herat, he could not touch King Hrothgar's golden throne because the throne had been blessed by the Almighty, and as a creature of Cain, Grendel could not touch it. So the bards had kind of created this symbolism of Grendel being such an evil creature that he couldn't touch this blessed golden shining throne that symbolized the true people of the land. But why bless the throne? Wouldn't a weapon or a piece of armor be something, I don't know, more useful since it's portable? Well, we see the same issue in the Shaname as well. It's that divine right of kings. So your right to rule comes from God. And so I guess it's just reestablishing the fact that as the king, Hrothgar is the ruler of all the land. So if he wants to put his meat hall wherever he wants, that's his right to do it. And so his throne being there is his throne. It's his right, not Grendel. So even if Grendel terrorizes the land for his entire life, he's never going to be the rightful ruler of it because he doesn't get that right from God. I get the feeling Grendel's not looking to rule this place as much as just do whatever he wants. And and I think he seems to be staying to his territory. So, but yes, I understand what you mean. (laughs) So here we see the narrator's great kind of conundrum. And that's whether to be true to the stories or to their own religion. And the story here is trying to bridge that gap between being true to the Germanic and pagan traditions and origins 
while also trying to reference Christianity constantly because probably the narrator thought, okay, well, I can't really just talk about these pagan gods as maybe someone who's living in a Christian England or, you know, some kind of religious England where they have to be writing about these kind of almighty texts, these biblical texts. Mm -hmm. So we do see these constant references to the almighty, to biblical stories. So at the end, it kind of gives the illusion that the narrator is trying to make this a story purely about good and evil. So it's not as kind of nuanced as epics like the Volsung saga or Homer's epics. But I think we can almost read past that a little bit because it's not just a story about good and evil. You can make a case for Grendel being there first, Grendel being terrorized. You can make a case for the men going after him too hard that it's not black and white as good and evil. The characters are a bit different. So I think it's honestly the narrator trying to be like, here's a really cool story, but also I'm going to put enough of this that you guys let me get it published and widespread. And that's just a little, you know, side note as well, because there's lots of references to the gods and to God. So it's a bit of a mix here. I mean, that's how we like our stories, mixed bag. (laughs) Continuing our story. During these 12 lonely years, the Danes tried to figure out how to best the monster. They planned, they sacrificed the old stone gods, they made pleas to the devil, and they consulted their best warriors. However, they could not figure out how to defeat the monster that lurked on their periphery. Eventually, news reached our young hero, Prince Beowulf, a warrior loyal to the king of the Yeats. The Yeats were located somewhere in modern-day Sweden. Beowulf gathered 14 of his strongest men, and with well wishes from his wise ones, he sailed across to the Danes. Eventually, after a long journey, they landed. And they were immediately met with the sentry, who was astounded and confused at this open act of war. He asked who they thought they were to show up, armed to the teeth and without invitation to the land of the Danes. This was simply not the way things were done. Beowulf responded with who he was and that they were here to help, and the men eventually escorted them through to Herod, where they were met with Wolfgar. The latter welcomed them and invited them to enter to meet the king, but he asked that they leave their weapons on the doorstep. And maybe I watch too much Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, but I really don't trust a situation where I'd be asked to leave my weapons at the door. Fox, if you were plopped into this fantasy setting of Sweden, what weapons would you have to leave at the door? Would you have like a million weapons or would you have like one big special weapon? I really like the trope where they just take weapons and weapons and weapons out like from different parts, like from their pockets, <laughs> their pants, their belts, their shoes, their hair, their necklaces. So I would like to do that. Just like a five minute long stint of me pulling weapons out from different places. <laughs> what I about you? It. Would you have the one weapon or would you be a multi-weapon kind of fighter? I would like to be the type of guy who they're like take out your weapons and i have none because my fists are my weapons <laughs> you just can't disarm me because i'm always ready to go see that's gonna be foreshadowing for later Ooh. so beowulf also goes to the J.R. martin school of distrust so he leaves a few armed men at the entrance to keep watch and he disarms when he meets the danish king hrothgar Beowulf sings his own praises as if he needs to give an interview his accomplishments. And let's ignore the fact that King Hrothgar can't exactly be picky about which heroes choose to come help him. <laughs> but as it turns out, Hrothgar already knows Beowulf's father. As it turns out, Hrothgar already knows Beowulf's father, Echtheo. 
and recalls how he had come to the Danes to ask for help and to make peace after Ejtheo had killed Hothloth, a wolfing warrior of an enemy tribe. So just to quickly recall, this theme of blood feuds will come up repeatedly in the story, and Beowulf is directly tied to one through blood, even if he himself doesn't face one until later on in the story. The blood feuds in this case is when someone from your clan or from your family gets murdered or injured, and then you have to go repay that blood in the form of the enemy's death. This could either be taking a life for a life on the battlefield or just, you know, in different ways. But this is kind of a disastrous circle in the fact that it ends up with one person killing someone and then that escalates to their family members then coming to get the blood feud. And then it just keeps going on and on until a proper price is paid. And here we kind of see Hrothgar taking the form of a peacekeeper where he intervenes and gives enough treasures and gold to the wolfings so that they will back off and accept the blood feud over. Notably, Beowulf's three monsters that he faces in the story are creatures and not other men. And then even later on, his blood feud with the Swedes is glossed over quite quickly. So Beowulf is a hero that doesn't, you know, spend a lot of time with these kind of human blood feuds. He's seen kind of a bit more elevated with these monstrous creatures. Which I'm sure helps goes along with the idea of being like black and white. We don't even have Beowulf getting mixed up in with uh, essentially politics of like the moment you kill anybody it's like oh did they deserve to be killed there becomes more questions we just get to bypass all of that seeing he's a great hero he's strong because he's killed monsters we never have to deal with the idea of oh but he's killed people before is he actually good like he can just stay as like oh yeah he's good he's definitely defeated monsters before yeah because i think when you start getting too deep into wars with men and feuds with actual men, it becomes a bit more difficult to stay on the side of, you know, I am a warrior of God, I'm a good person, and it's hard to kind of maintain that image of him in that sense. Whereas if he's fighting monsters, then it's easier to say, well, they're evil creatures and he's going after them. Mm -hmm. So in Beowulf's long speech, he says he's already a seasoned warrior. He's fought in wars, chained five great giants, removed their race from the earth. He's hunted monsters that lurked in the seas. And he's stripped from the blood of men. Now, Beowulf explains he was drawn to Grendel and asks for one favor. He wants to fight Grendel without any weapons. So essentially hard mode. <laughs> he says either God will help him be victorious against evil, or there'll be nothing left for anyone to mourn since the monster will take care of their bodies. After all, his fate has already been decided. Hrothgar listened and replied that he was happy to welcome Beowulf to his home as he had done for Beowulf's father. Then the men all feasted and drank, and with only one slight interruption the night where someone made fun of Beowulf, everything went well. And then when night fell, the Danes all left, leaving the Yeats there alone. Why make fun of him? The dude is clearly well-equipped and very strong, and he is going on hard mode, which means you know he has a good idea of what he's capable of, and that is a lot. So it seems like you're trying to poke a bear here, and that doesn't seem like it's going to end well for you. It is a little bit random, but I mean, again, beggars can't really be choosers, so they don't really know much about the quality of hero Beowulf is. They have to kind of go off of his ancestry, so his father, and what they know about the yachts a whole. So it's a little bit kind of trusting, I guess. They have to trust that this is going to go well, but also it can't really be nice to know that other people have to come in and save your people. I know King Hrothgar probably doesn't see it like that he probably sees it as some kind of you know repayment for what he did for Beowulf's father 
but the men's pride probably is a big factor in the fact that they insulted Beowulf just because they have been dealing with this for 12 years and they couldn't come up with a solution. So to have someone else come and kind of not even be a little bit scared, a little bit nervous, but to straight up say, oh, I'm just going to use my hands. Don't worry about it. It's a little bit humiliating. So I can see where maybe where the insults came from a place of embarrassment, maybe even awkwardness, a little bit of pride getting in there. But despite the fact that, you know, they were willing to throw a little bit of insults, so all of the Danes do leave. So even with this new hero at his doorstep, King Hrothgar won't risk his men. And he takes them and he leaves while the Yeats stay. This isn't cowardice or weakness, but age. So he's been around for 12 winters and he's seen countless men try and fail. And if you think about it, he's probably seen other heroes also come and try their hand at Grendel. So he sees no reason to stay and watch the bloodshed or to risk his men some more. Fair enough. So after a night of drinking and feasting, some of the Yeats fell asleep. But Beowulf stayed awake, waiting for the monster to appear. As it happens, Grendel arrived not long after. He slid out of the shadows, his belly waiting for a feast he would soon enjoy. When he entered the hall, he was momentarily surprised by the number of warriors waiting for him. But he just thought of it as more bones to gnaw. He grabbed the first young warrior and tore him apart. And when he was done drinking the man's blood, he reached for another. However, as he closed his hands around Beowulf, the warrior prince sprang up and seized Grendel, bending the monster's claws back. Grendel drew back, all his thoughts on running away. Beowulf and Grendel fought, their cries and yells waking the other warriors, all of whom stood ready with their weapons, but didn't intervene. They remembered their prince's words on killing the monster with his bare hands, but they were ready to step in on a moment's notice. They would have soon found out that their swords would have been useless since Grendel had long ago bewitched the weapons of men to not be harmful to him. I understand Beowulf wanting to start this off on hard mode and be like, yeah, I can do it fisticuffs. But the moment you see it, don't you think you would at least try and go for a weapon? Like, why are we still doing the fisticuffs here, man? It's it's stories like this that make 6% of Americans think that they can win an unarmed fight with a bear. And 8% who think they can best lions or elephants in unarmed combat. Maybe it's age. Maybe it's inexperience. Who knows? I mean, I think hearing about a monster that 12 years of heroes couldn't fight or couldn't destroy. And not only do you go in with this kind of cockiness, but you go in with more than that. You go in with, oh, I'm going to do it with no with no weapons. Don't worry. I mean, it's a good thing that he planned on not using weapons because he would have found out they would have been useless. I don't know exactly what he's thinking. It's probably one of those things that maybe the narrator added in for fun. It could have been one of those things that, you know, it got exaggerated as time went. Because I could easily see it being that Beowulf did try to use a weapon, but then he realized it didn't work. So then later on, he was like, oh, yeah, I chose not to use a weapon. Yeah, I planned that out, guys. <laughs> it's kind of like those fake leakers on Twitter. They'll tweet like 100 different things. And then after announcements are made, they'll delete all of them except one that was kind of right and be like, see, guys, I knew about it. <laughs> also, I'm sorry, 8% of Americans think they can fight a lion or an elephant. Unarmed. Yep. I love that. In this case, Beowulf wasn't exactly wrong. Their battle waged, but Grendel could not get free of Beowulf's grasp on his arm. In his desperation to get free, Grendel pulled back, and his entire arm tore off, shoulder and all. Grendel used momentum to escape, his arm dripping blood as he fled back to his hole in the marsh. And even as he lay there dying, he knew his time had come. Grendel died alone and miserable in his watery lair, 
while the sounds of the Danes and Yeats rang out in the air as they celebrated their glory. The next day, great groups of men came to celebrate Beowulf's victory. They marveled at the monster's arm hanging from the rafters of the ceiling. They followed his bloody tracks to the edge of the lake, but they could not reach him. The day itself was filled with redecorating, treasure-giving, feasting, and celebrating. The poets sang tales of the famous Siegfried and Finn, and in the story of Finn, the focus is on his wife, Hildebrand, who is caught in the middle between her people, the Danes, and her husband's people, the Frisians. She ended up losing her brothers, her son, and her husband in the blood feuds. This story will act as a foil later for our next monster, but also, it's kind of a weird choice for a story to tell during, you know, a celebration, but you know, each their own. You know what we need in this time of celebration? Foreshadowing. Let's get some <laughs> of that. <laughs> I'm sure like people tell legends and tales of heroes just to be like, oh, look at this other hero that also existed. Or look at this other story that also makes sense in this context. Hopefully we don't end up the way they ended up. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And as foreshadowing goes, the men's victory did not last long. Grendel's mother appeared at the meat hall that night, her fury unrestrained. She wrecked havoc, but seeing all of the men, she fled with only one of the Danes and her son's arm. The man she had taken happened to be the king's closest friend, and he mourned his friend. They had fought one monster only to find another. It's interesting how it's the mother who is seeking revenge here. It's a good reminder that even the worst people will often have strong bonds with loved ones. So even if people receive justice, those who were close to them will still suffer as a result. And we can see in this tale, this can easily shift into a cycle of destruction. Yes, it all kind of ties back to this idea of blood feuds. Except, you know, Grendel's mother, she takes on kind of the opposite of Hildebrand, so the one that the bars were singing about. Because she doesn't just accept the death and destruction, she doesn't just, you know, mourn her son and leave it at that. She takes on the masculine need for vengeance, and she's the one that continues the need for the blood feud. So she's the one that perpetuates it, that makes it keep going. It is said in some versions of the story that, you know, she travels quite a long way to get to here. So it's not like she's from the area that she's also been listening to these sounds and noises, and they've also been destroying her or giving her pain. It's just that it's her son that died, so she's going to go after them. And she's described more of as a sea hag. The more we talk about Blood Feud, the more I just think it's like some terrible old TV series. And it's like, coming up next on Blood Feud, this family said this about them. What will they do next to even the score? Find out on Blood Feud. (laughs) The Real Housewives of Scandinavia. (laughs) Essentially, that's now how I'm picturing this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it, it does give kind of that vibe where it's like... Something's been taken from you, so now you need to take something back from the other person in order to be whole again. Yeah, because that always turns out so well. <laughs> <laughs> Never. So the Yayats had not been at the hall, but they quickly returned when the news of the new monster came to them. King Hrothgar told them of Grendel's mother, and he recalled stories of where to find such a monster and her lair. It just happened to be another underwater cave. Beowulf accepted the challenge without hesitation, and he tracked the monster to the lake. He dived in and sank for hours and hours until he reached the bottom. At once, Grendel's mother knew someone had entered her domain. She appeared out of nowhere and sprang at him, grabbing him in her claws. Tried as he might, he could not free his weapon, and tried as she might, she could not sink her claws through his armor. 
Dare I even ask at this point how Beowulf was able to survive that long underwater? May I remind you that the world record for holding one's breath underwater is only 24 minutes? Very much falling short of Beowulf sinking for hours and then fighting a monster underwater with his armor on. I don't suppose there was any mention of Beowulf eating some gillyweed? <laughs> or transforming his head into that of a shark? Yeah, yeah, one of those types of things. That that would make a lot more sense suddenly. <laughs> it could be hyperbole. It could be that, you know, he's from some kind of great ancestry. Although I'm sure if he had been from some kind of godly ancestry, we would have heard pages and pages about it, but we didn't. I'm leaning towards hyperbole. I mean, given that, you know, he is fighting this sea hag creature surrounded by other sea monsters, we can give him a little bit of leeway with the fantasy. All I'm hearing as I read this, though, is the various sounds from video games of, like, you're underwater for too long, and it's like the timer is speeding up, like, hey, get to the surface, get some air, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. Or when the game mechanics are so bad that you can't even, like, just pull yourself out of the water, so you have to just die from swimming. Yeah, you get to a ledge you think you can grab onto, but you're just, like, one inch too short, so your character's, like, jumping. Clearly probably could grab it, but it's not grabbing it because how the mechanics work. You're like, no, please, help, no. Okay, I'm dead. Listen, I fail to believe that these great, you know, video game characters who go around on horses and fighting monsters and, you know, paragliding off of giant towers, that they can't swim for more than like 30 seconds at a time. Right? So she dragged him back to her lair. On the way... Other monsters tried to hold on, but they also could not, because this seemed to be very sturdy armor. Upon reaching her lair, Grendel's mother threw him in, and Beowulf tried immediately to use his sword, but it failed against her enchantments. They wrestled, back to the hand-to-hand method. Nothing could save Beowulf except his infallible armor, which withstood a dagger straight to the chest. They fought long enough for Beowulf to see a massive sword hanging on the wall among all of the other treasures in her lair. He knew it was forged by giants, and somehow he managed to unseat the sword, and with the last of his strength, he swung it straight through the monster's neck. However, just seeing her lying there, Beowulf knew he wasn't done yet. He stalked around until he found Grendel's dead body. He lopped off Grendel's head and took it with him as he made the trip upwards in the bloodied waters. Don't you just hate one-use magic items? Like, you get so excited. You're like, oh my gosh, I can finally use this amazing weapon. You use it, like, immediately, and it just melts in the enemy. And you're like, oh, guess I just have a hilt now. (laughs) I don't really understand the optics of why it melted. I guess Grendel's mother's blood was so cursed that it was, it just destroyed the sword entirely. But I can't see why it would do that if giants were also evil creatures. Assuming that, you know, evil and evil meet, there shouldn't be a reaction. If it had been, let's say, a heavenly sword or something like that, it would have made sense. But we can leave it as just a one-use magic item. Yeah. It's just, it's just so disappointing because, you know, he just got it. When I read this, I was like, oh, yeah, this is going to be the sword that he has for the rest of his adventures. And it's going to be like the thing that represents him. And immediate was like, and it's broken. Anyways, that's just my <laughs> disappointment. Continue. So... Above ground, the Danes were waiting anxiously for Beowulf's body to float to the top. They mourned the great warrior and hero as they waited. Eventually, the sun went down and the Danes headed home with King Hrothgar, but Beowulf's men decided to wait for their prince. They were soon rewarded by the sight of Beowulf rising from the waters. 
the cursed creature's head in his hands. Rejoicing, they returned to a stunning victory. Hrothgar gave Beowulf many treasures and many thanks. Beowulf returned to his home, where he eventually became king, after his uncle, King Hylik's death in a battle, and Hylik's son's death at the hands of the Swedes. The feud only ended when Beowulf completed the blood feud by killing one of the Swedes. On this episode of Blood Feud, Beowulf completes it. (laughs) (laughs) He ruled for 50 years, but his peaceful reign soon ended when a slave unknowingly disturbed a dragon's lair. The dragon ravaged the lands looking for the thief, and when Beowulf's throne room was burnt down, Beowulf decided to take action and bring an end to this terror. From the start of the battle, it is clear that Beowulf had no thought of winning or living, and yet he went forward anyway. During the actual battle, his men quickly abandoned him and contrast the way they stood vigil for him at Grendel's mother's lake. Facing off with the dragon, Beowulf used his sword and it snapped against the scales. The dragon reared back and fatally bit Beowulf before his loyal warrior and the only one who stayed, Wiglaf, intervened and distracted the dragon long enough for the king to stab it. His victory, however, was very short-lived. Even as he instructed Wiglaf to bring him the treasure, Beowulf knew he was dying. Wait a minute. Why is now a good time to use weapons? Like, he was going up at this unknown monster before, and he's like, yeah, fisticuffs. And now he's like, no, no. Sword and shield. Very good idea. Dude, (laughs) you had a thing, and then you abandoned the thing. To be fair, the only time he actually insisted on not using weapons was with Grendel. With Grendel's mother, he used his sword, and it didn't work, so he used a giant sword. And, you know, seeing a dragon, now he's, you know, 50 years older than he was in the events of the Grendel and Grendel's mother's case, he's probably realized he should be a little bit more careful, given that he's the king of these people and he has no heir to leave everything to. But also, a dragon is really scary, whereas, you know, Grendel, people don't really know how to describe Grendel, and a sea hag is still some kind of, like, you can think of it, but a dragon is just beyond the realm of normal fantasy, that it's a bit different, it's a bit more elevated, I think. I think he's just wimping out, and he should have gone fisticuffs. That would have been much more entertaining for for me. It would have sucked for him, but, you know, we're not worried about that. (laughs) I'm sure without a shield, he would have been burnt to a crisp immediately. So this is just, you know, longevity. It just feels like he started off as a barbarian class, and now he's multi-classed way too late into, like, fighter or something. Okay, fine. So he can use the the pointy stick. Go for it. (laughs) I mean, it looks like it helped him win in the end, but not didn't get to survive much longer than that. Well, I'm sure the fact that his friend actually intervened as well helped a bit. He would have died otherwise, I'm sure. Ah, the power of friendship and teamwork. (laughs) So he instructed Wiglaf to bring him the treasures, and his obsession with seeing the treasure could be seen as a way of making sure he left something behind as his legacy. He laments that he has no sons and no heir, but he has this to leave to his people. Wiglaf hurried to the barrow, and he saw a mixture of rusty treasures and golden ones. But he cared more about his king, and he quickly grabbed what he could. When he came back, Beowulf managed his final words, and after naming his friend his heir, he died. The end of the poem tells us the land would soon be ravaged, and there would be no end to the devastation. It brings up our largest complaint with heroes, and that is the issue between honor and duty. Beowulf was an older king when the dragon attacked, so it would have been honorable and fine for him to let the younger warriors take over, as Hrothgar did when Beowulf stepped up. 
So do you think that either king is better than the other? Do you think that Beowulf should have stayed back and given someone else a chance, even if it would have taken maybe a decade or so? Or do you think that he had to do something and he had no choice? Gosh, uh, that sucks, one. <laughs> Two, I mean, I think you could have pulled back a little bit, like take on some of the initial devastation, try and rearrange some things. Maybe there was a hero of just the neighbors and you only would have had destruction for a year or something. And then maybe you could have, I don't know, gotten an heir during that time. So at least if you had to still go battle like a year later or something, like you would have had things in place to to take over when you're gone. So I don't know. I would say both answers <laughs> together. <laughs> I think this is like a key reason why we don't really see heroes ever fully realizing their potential after and they kind of have almost, like, well, at least in the Grecian ones, they almost always have some kind of fall from grace after their big adventure. I mean, we see it with Jason. We see it with Heracles. We see it with Theseus. They do the great things that we know them for. And then they have like the oft unknown future part that they're like, oh, and happily ever after. But also turned out they weren't actually really good at doing what they were supposed to do. And so I think Beowulf was a good hero when he was younger. And he might have been a good king for those 50 years. But his decision to, you know, not pull back with his people, to not, you know, move them or relocate like Hrothgar did, it's not a really good move to make as a king knowing that your people have no one else to rely on besides you. Mm -hmm. And that once you're gone, you don't have, let's say, a nephew to leave something to. You don't have someone that you can dedicate your throne to. You have to just pick someone on the spot. And so there's no time, there's no room to have like a good power change. And this is all, you know, this is all coming after, you know, Queen Elizabeth's death. So we've seen an actual power change happen, a transition happen. And I think with something like this, you need to give people stability, specifically during a time when there's so many wars going on and blood feuds and people have tribes they hate and they're waiting for an opportunity to attack. And so he's opened up his people to this attack on another front. So he fought the dragon, but he didn't really think about what next, what happens if he loses. And that's the problem, I think, with him as a king. Well, yeah, and I think when I read this, I don't read a king. I read a warrior, someone who longs for that battle. Like, we we hear his grand tales at the beginning that he tells before he goes to fight Grendel. And then he goes so far as to say, ah, I'm going to fight Grendel just with my fists, like, no big deal. I think he's also just looking for that fight and that thrill of the fight. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I don't even think he was thinking or really much cared about his kingdom when he thought oh i gotta fight a dragon it was i'm gonna get to fight a dragon let me at him like i don't think he was actually thinking that far i think he was just wanting to fight and i think it just was uh afterthought when he realized oh i'm dying i should probably do something about this at least that's how i understand the story more than him being very cautious as a king no i feel like there's i mean we're not going to be able to like answer this question fully because people have dedicated their lives to trying to understand what kind of king he was, if he's a good enough king, if he was a good warrior, if he was a better king than a warrior. And I know a lot of people argue that he didn't have a choice. I mean, the dragon burnt down his, essentially what would be his palace, although, you know, less grand. But the symbolism of it was that something was destroyed that marked his power. And so he almost had to do something about it. But it's no different, really, from seeing the same thing happen to Hrothgar. And he was able to pack up his men and leave and leave it for someone else and consult other people and figure out, you know, another way forward. And I mean, it did take him 11 years. And unlike 
Grendel, the dragon probably wouldn't have stayed in one area. It would have probably caused a lot more damage than just, you know, one little area with the meat hall. It's hard to compare without using, you know, quotes and looking at both of them and close reading both scenes. But I agree with kind of your initial thoughts as well, is that when you see a dragon, you kind of like the warrior in you goes, oh, look, a dragon, I'm gonna fight that. Because that's just what you do, you know, yeah. that's what a hero does. That's what a warrior does. Forgetting the fact that, you know, you're old and, you know, you have people to think about and you have a family to think about and you, well, you know, you're close tribesmen and stuff. So it's probably just one of those, I wasn't thinking, but I'm a good person and a good person would do this. So I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And that is the story of Beowulf. Yay. It's not exactly the same story you might have, you know, begrudgingly not read and then read the Sparknotes version of for class. But it is still, you know, it's true to the story. We've used the translations, but we've tried to stick as close to the most important parts of it so that we weren't sitting here and telling you who someone's father and father's father and father's father's father and third aunt twice removed was. Yeah. <laughs> and while Beowulf doesn't always think far ahead because he was just getting caught up in the fights that were happening, we were thinking ahead and we came up with five fantastic finds for you. Number one. Swords were prized possessions in the Anglo-Saxon era, the time in which the tale of Beowulf begins to become prominent. Spears were a relatively common weapon, and axes tended to be dual-purpose blades. Swords, on the other hand, were created purely for combat and were often passed on from warrior to warrior. These swords were seen as valuable as they had experienced battle and survived. So, they were cherished by the owner even if we would consider them old. And we know that they were valued because archaeologists today have found several people from this era buried with their swords alongside them, across the body, or even being cradled in their arms. This brings us to Beowulf's weapon, Herting. We only briefly mention his trusty sword in our story today, but in the poem, the sword is described as an ancient weapon that has never failed in battle and is engraved with ill-boding patterns. We now know that an old weapon was a valued weapon, so it is obvious that the poem would want to highlight the history of the blade. But what's also interesting is the mention of the ill-boding pattern. This could easily be chalked up to aesthetics, but there's a little more to it than that. During this era, swords were often forged using a pattern welding practice. This process involved taking strips of iron with differing compositions that are forged and welded together being twisted and distorted to form a pattern. Blades with this unique pattern were often very prized as it was believed to be a stronger weapon. Some studies today indicate that may not be the case, but for the time, swords with designs were always better. Too bad Beowulf's epic sword didn't play a huge role with Grendel, due to the whole not being a magical item thing, but it helped take down the dragon, so it still earns its legend. Number 2. With J.R.R. Tolkien in the news once again due to the Rings of Power television series, I think it's a great segue to bring up Tolkien's scholarship and lectures on Beowulf. In his essay titled Beowulf, The Monsters and the Critics, which can be found on our website, Tolkien takes on the larger historical scholarship surrounding Beowulf and argues that the monsters being a central part of the story is not an accident or a way to allude to other more exciting legends and myths, but to create a fairy tale in its own right. Grendel, Grendel's mother, and the dragon are the main focus of Beowulf's struggles because they encapsulate evil in its most basic sense, as tangible evil creatures that are derived from Cain. As we mentioned during the retelling of the story, the author of Beowulf grapples with pagan and Christian motives and tries to find a balance between the two. 
At its very core, this is not a story about men fighting men or heroes at war against each other like in the Iliad, or even men fighting mythical monsters like in the Odyssey. Grendel and his monsters aren't like the monsters Odysseus had to face like the Cyclops. They are monsters of Cain and therefore monsters that fit into a Christian world. It is about death and the personification of death as monsters that lie in wait like the dragon. The great tragedy in Beowulf isn't just about the hero's death, but the death of all men. In Tolkien's own monsters, we see some Beowulf influences. Gollum is thought to be influenced by Grendel and even Smaug from Beowulf's dragon. Like the author of Beowulf, Tolkien was religious, and his clear light equals good and dark equals bad symbology can be seen in the way he writes his characters and monsters. He does describe Lord of the Rings as a fundamentally religious work. The question of faith versus fantasy is difficult, but as we have seen in our previous hero episodes, a lot of our heroes and their quests come from places of faith. Number three, Beowulf confidently faces Grendel with nothing but his fists because he is confident in his strength, but also because he is fated to be a great hero and ultimately win. This is a recurring thing for him. He pretty much knows he is destined to be a legendary hero, so why not own it? The can't-fight-destiny trope is when there is a character who fully accepts a prophecy or prediction of the future and actively works to fulfill said future. This is commonly placed upon Chosen Ones or other great heroes like Beowulf. This is often the most inspiring version of it, and it can be a motivator or a burden for the hero depending on where they are in their arc. But sometimes, these feelings of not fighting destiny can have some bizarre outcomes as seen in 2011's The Adjustment Bureau. Um, uh, yeah, spoilers if you haven't seen it yet. Basically, the story follows Matt Damon's character who is a big-shot politician running to be a state senator. But then he meets Emily Blunt's character, and gosh darn it, wouldn't you know that he just falls in love with her just like that. But then these people, aptly named Agents of Fate, just keep conspiring to keep them apart because they aren't supposed to be together and the fate of the entire world would shift if they somehow did. But it's even stated in the movie that the agents don't even question the fate. They are just like, oh, that's how it's supposed to be? Great, guess I'll just ruin these two people's lives, because that's destiny, baby. Some characters don't even want the future they are fighting for to happen, but they see it as a lesser evil, or they have just given up entirely. These types of stories are almost always about changing one's fate in the end, so they don't follow this trope for the whole story. But whatever the reason a character starts or ends up believing you can't fight fate, it's always fascinating to see how they ended up there. Number 4. During this episode, a very important element comes to play, and that is the role of the bard in sharing and spreading stories. I'm sure we all know what a bard should look like. And whether you picture a lusty bard from D&D or Jeskier from The Witcher, the basic premise of a bard is someone who travels from court to court sharing stories and histories among groups of people. Some of the original bards were Celtic composers and storytellers known for composing verses about heroes and their deeds. And like most other artistic traditions at the time, they had wealthy patrons who helped fund their lifestyle. These types of patrons were especially prominent during the Renaissance. If the bard was not paid or ill-used, then they would often write scathing verses or stories about their former patrons. While the bardic tradition declined throughout Europe, it remained prominent in Ireland, where they have a long history. Specifically in Ireland, the history of the bards first comes from mythology. The Tuatha Dé Danann, 
were a supernatural race of deities or pagan gods, and in one account from the Book of Invasions, they left their homes in the other world and settled in Ireland, where they were split into three tribes, the nobility, the priests, and the bards. Over time, the term bard has expanded to include a few authors like William Shakespeare, who is known as the Bard of Avon for a specific contribution to storytelling. Other famous bards include Homer, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Number five. I always knew that Beowulf was a great classic hero, but I was surprised when I first read the story that he was actually a prince too. Now, a hero king is not exactly a new concept, but it's not the norm in these stories either, especially thinking of our recent coverage on the Shahnameh and how there was a very clear distinction between the heroes and the royal family. But let's face it, royals who actually do something are great, because as royals, they do have a duty to their people instead of just sitting around looking pretty. But you know what they say, with great power comes great responsibility. But this also makes more sense for the era since kings in this time generally became kings more because of their fighting prowess rather than their bloodline. And that idea of strength equaling authority is often relevant as well. After all, I don't think Godzilla was born of a royal blood. He earned that King of Monsters title with him being the biggest, baddest around. Now I just want to see a fight between Beowulf and Godzilla. <laughs> Not that Beowulf would stand a chance, but I'd love to see how long he would last. As always, if you want to see the show summary, notes, and the five fantastic finds, please check them out on our website, talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. If you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at FromEnchanted or Instagram at talesfromtheenchantedforest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at talesfromtheenchantedforest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. So if, if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard here today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. We'll give you a big shout out and our eternal gratitude. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Mm-hmm.